we've seen obviously good data in um, you know obesity, insulin sensitivity, um, you know energy, uh, and there's a lot of a lot of really exciting data even as it relates to longevity um, with uh, populations like uh, the centurion centurion populations in, in Japan who can live to be you know 120 years old, expressing this polymorphism which means that they have higher levels of, of MOT-SC. Um, so really, really exciting in a variety of areas. It looks like this one is, uh, is going to be one of the, the, the peptides of the future. Welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast. Today, we have Ryan Smith interviewed by our medical director, Dr. Dan Stickler. Several years ago, Ryan decided to leave medical school and help open up one of the first pharmacies in the United States that focused on peptide synthesis and formulations for pharmaceutical preparations. There are a handful of folks diving into the world of peptides, but it's very possible you've never heard of it. We invite you to explore a whole new world with us today as we go over what peptides are, the science behind some of the most popular peptides, and how to use them. Thanks for listening to our show. It'd really help us out if you could leave us a review and a rating on iTunes so that more people can find our podcast. Collective Insights is brought to you by Neurohacker Collective, where we offer a line of cognitive enhancement supplements called Qualia. Visit neurohacker.com to see how you can save 50% off your first order of Qualia Mind or Qualia Focus. Stay tuned for the April launch of our new product, Eternus, designed to beat aging and stress. Thanks again for joining us. Now let's jump into the show. Hey everyone, welcome to this edition of Collective Insights with Neurohacker Collective. I'm Dr. Dan, I am the medical director here at Neurohacker, and I'm hosting this special podcast to introduce uh, an area that many of you are probably pretty excited about. It's an area that I'm certainly excited about and becoming a very um, popular topic on the internet for sure, but we're gonna be talking about the use of peptides in cognitive performance and neurologic health. This is going to be a great talk. And with me today, our special guest is Ryan Smith. Ryan attended Transylvania University and graduated with a degree in biochemistry. Uh, in that time, he had multiple research in internships at the University of Kentucky as well as the University of Pennsylvania, where he was studying large-scale protein synthesis and physical chemistry. Pretty cool stuff. After graduation, he attended uh, two years of medical school, so he went through the curriculum training, but he saw the light and saw an opportunity. So after finishing those first two years, he left medical school and uh, focused on starting a pharmacy that focused on peptide synthesis and formulations um, for pharmaceutical preparations. So since that time, the pharmacy I'm talking about is TaylorMade Pharmacy or TaylorMade Compounding Pharmacy. It become licensed in over 45 states. I think it's even more than that now. Um, oh. Most all the states have it. And they opened up an additional location in Dubai, of all places. Uh, but TaylorMade Compounding was the first pharmacy to offer an extensive list of peptides in the U.S. and has become the leader in the compounding of peptides and proteins for pharmaceutical use. So welcome, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, so this is going to be an exciting topic uh, as you and I are, uh, have communicated quite a bit. You know, I work with your uh, prescribing out of your pharmacy with a lot of the peptides that I use and we're just seeing spectacular results. And I want to talk a little bit about just what peptides are because I think there's, um, 
you know, there's not a, a good concept that people have in understanding the difference between peptides and uh, prescription medications and those kind of things. So if you can kind of give us a, an overview of what that actually is. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the term peptide comes with a little bit of added baggage um, just because a lot of these products, which are considered peptides, have been, um, you know, not necessarily uh, standard of care medicine. And a lot of them are sort of unknown to conventional medicine, which is sort of a shame. But uh, the peptides generally are definitely a medication. Um, they're, they're technically defined as uh, amino acid sequences uh, in a sort of a chain-by-chain format, less than 50 amino acids. Um, and what we're doing is we're actually taking advantage of sort of the, uh, the central dogma of biochemistry to mimic your body's natural signaling. Um, so these peptide chains uh, can, it first started up to be things like hormone replacement therapy. We were, you know, for instance, producing insulin to mimic the body's uh, endogenous lack of production of some of these things. And now we've uh, been able to create even new peptides and new molecules, which can augment or even uh, stimulate this in a, in a mechanism that, that goes beyond replacement. Um, so, so peptides generally are just a class of drug. Um, and they can encompass everything from cancer to uh, performance to uh, you know, surgery to aesthetics uh, to what we're talking about today in terms of uh, neurological function. Now, the, the interesting thing I find about peptides is they're kind of a mix of, of natural synthetic. Um, so many of these peptides are, are really identical amino uh, acid sequences to peptides that our body naturally produces with little tweaks and modifications that can occur or just taking segments of what we naturally produce. And this allows us to create very specific outcomes with, with these peptides. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, you're totally correct. It started, uh, as I mentioned, with uh, you know, some things like oxytocin and ACTH, where you were just trying to, uh, again, augment the body's natural production uh, if the body wasn't producing enough. Um, and then now it's turned into we're able to uh, combine different segments of different peptides to increase stability, to increase half-life. So, uh, mimic nature, but uh, hopefully do a better job of doing it more selectively and uh, and uh, definitely using that as our inspiration um, for, for a lot of the new things that we're, we're currently using in medical practice. And, you know, despite uh, some of the marketing on the internet, I mean, the majority of these peptides, barring a few of them, um, are not orally bioavailable. Um, why is that, that we can't take most of these orally? Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. There, there are quite a few reasons you couldn't take it orally, but the main reason is that most of these amide bonds, which connect each amino acid to each other, are easily degraded um, by the enzymes in, in your gastrointestinal tract. Beyond that, even if you had one that was successfully uh, intact at the end of it, getting absorption into the intestines um, or through uh, any type of in, into the bloodstream can be difficult just due to, uh, to sometimes their size and polarity. They're not exactly small molecules. Yeah, and at the end of uh, at the end of our interview, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between purchasing pharmaceutical grade versus a lot of what the biohackers are out there doing and getting getting um, internet uh, purchases from research chemical companies. I think it's something that we need to to kind of just clarify as to what the difference of those two are. But let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, one of one of my favorites that is on the market, it's been on the market for quite a while, is actually uh, cerebrolysin, uh, kind of a mix of, of different peptides. So this one isn't just a clear-cut individual peptide. This is actually a mix. So can you tell us a little bit about cerebrolysin? 
Yeah, the cerebral eisen is one of my favorites as well. And, and, and we had, I know a few conversations about this, but it has got uh, double blind randomized placebo controlled trials in a variety of conditions. I um, mean, it looks to be good in just about everything. It's got uh, studies in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, you know, dementia, uh, stroke, traumatic brain injury. And what it is, is essentially a, uh, originally, I guess it was a, a biological preparation of, por of porcine brain tissue. Um, and they use that to sort of purify nerve growth factors, which they can then, uh, you know, traditionally infuse via IV infusion, um, to, uh, help with some of these pretty, uh, uh, severe neurodegenerative diseases. And there's some, I mean, there's some pretty robust research, uh, used in Alzheimer's disease, uh, where they, they've actually seen very good cognitive improvement. Um, but the, from what I understand, protection of cell death, uh, growth of new brain cells, improved communication, increased metabolism, decreased amyloid beta, decreased inflammation. I mean, that sounds pretty impressive. Absolutely. And, it, and it's uh, unfortunately due to its nature, it's hard to isolate a one particular method of act or mechanism of action. Um, but it tends to be just all encompassing, exactly like you said, in a variety of uh, pathologies, it just sort of promotes healthy brain function. Yeah. And I read one study where they were talking about, I think they, they use like um, 60 some uh, ADHD um, patients and they found 80% had improvement in their ADHD symptoms. Definitely, definitely. And it, beyond that, it's, uh, it's sort of talking about ADHD. It's also been studied in pediatric patients, um, which is uh, also sort of encouraging too, because, uh, you know, one of the most widely prescribed and diagnosed reasons for ADHD is in, in children. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it, it, again, it, it helps with focus. It helps with memory. You know, subjectively, what we see in the patients we typically use it in uh, is always almost an improvement of disease state. But even those people who are relatively healthy or using it preventatively uh, usually even get a, just a general brain boost to feel more focused, to feel like they're able to learn a little bit easier. Um, and so it's, it's uh, you know, someone who works with a lot of optimized patients, not just necessarily disease patients. You can see it uh, across a, a variety of patient populations. Yeah, and we had a, a little conversation about this not too long ago. Um, a question I had because I had read about some people that were developing what's called prion disease. And this is one of the aspects of cerebral lysin. And this was a discussion you and I had is that some of this is derived completely from the pig, um, pig brain. Some of it is, um, some that you get is a mix of synthesized and animal derived uh, product. And there's always a risk of, of getting prion disease. And prion disease is, is basically similar to, mad cow is a prion disease. But I've seen some, uh, some people posting their experience with cerebral license. Saw two of them that had uh, long-term substantial issues with that. Now, you guys take, very special precautions in this situation that right yeah absolutely um you know pigs generally are very prion resistant species um which is, is definitely good and so but also the uh from the pharmaceutical sourcing of these you go through multitudes of uh, of testing in order to determine that there's no prions and then again they're also synthetic versions of this um you know large scale i should say uh 
quantifications of the cerebralizin have been gone underway. We know it's, you know, whenever tested in MS, uh, mass spec in LC, uh, we know that it's 683 individual peptides. Um, and a lot of people will take the first 10, the most uh, 10 highly expressed peptides or the most 20 highly expressed peptides in order to give a much safer synthetic version of the same product. Yeah, and so this this is one you definitely want to make sure you're getting quality stuff from. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, another cool one that I really like is uh, Cell Link, and this one comes in nasal spray, which is, uh, and it's just a very tiny amino acid. I mean, it's seven amino acids, that's it. Absolutely. Yeah, this one this one is uh, much more accessible. Uh, you know, with the cerebralizin, sometimes you have to do it in high quantities and for long periods of time, whereas the C-Link is one of those that you can get immediate benefit from, even if you just use it once and it's nasally bioavailable. So uh, one that, uh, you know, I would say is, is more frequently used and prescribed. Yeah, and I, I've seen some pretty profound effects with it with uh, people that had generalized anxiety disorder. Just anxiety and depression in general seem to from my experience in talking with people that have done this, uh, it seems to be pretty profound. Yeah, definitely. And uh, this is, again, one with a, a sort of a, a, a complex mechanism of action. We're not really sure how it's doing all the things it's doing. It, it can reduce uh, carboxypeptidase uh, expression. It can increase BDNF. Um, it can do a lot of different things. But um, the one thing we see clinically is, like you said, uh, reduction of anxiety. Reduction of anxiety along with some antiviral activity. Um, and so, uh, you know, even within the one dose, most people can tell a difference. And now, there was a study that I read about uh, Celanc that I found kind of interesting. I mean, it was a rat study, so it wasn't a human study, but they, they had rats on a high-fat diet. And they found that when the rats that were given Celanc had 35% less weight gain, they had 58% reduction in cholesterol and a 25% reduction in blood sugars. Do you had any reports of, of this uh, in in humans? Not at all. That that, that metabolic disease study though is very very fascinating. It's always one I, I sort of point out to people um, as maybe one of the other possible effects. You know, beyond that, there's uh, um, but I've never I've never actually seen it. Definitely something we've speculated on. Um, the other thing I should note is that uh, there is a pathway which, B, if you increase BDNF, uh, increasing BDNF can also um, in, increase AMP kinase and increase the uh, ability to metabolize fatty acids. Um, and so as a result, there is a proposed mechanism. But with that being said, we haven't really seen it with a large scale in, in our C-Link users. Yeah, this is, you know, this is an issue that we run into a lot is with a lot of these peptides. There aren't a lot of human trials. And is this because of the lack of ability to patent this, that we're not seeing the, the human trials um, coming up? Definitely. And in, in the case of uh, both the, the C-Link and the C-Max, they're also Russian products. Um, and so getting the data um, and, and verifying it has been relatively segmented to, uh, you know, it's, it's on the approved in Russia and on the list of essential products, um, but it, it's not really made its way over to the U.S. yet. So all of the data, including all of the human study data, is really based in Russia. And so as a result, it hasn't made a huge progression in the United States. Um, for peptides in general, a lot of the times they can't be patented because, uh, you know, they're very, very similar to, you know, endogenous uh, sequences or they've been patented and sort of abandoned. Um, just because of the problems that peptides have had traditionally had in medication, which is that, uh, as we already discussed, they're not really bioavailable any other way except injections, uh, which has sort of 
made pharmaceutical companies less likely to try and invest in them. Um, and then the other issue is that their half-lives are so short that, uh, you know, you'd have to dose more frequently, both of which has sort of made, you know, most big pharmaceutical companies a little bit wary of them. Um, and so most pharmaceutical companies have just invested in, in high throughput output or high throughput screening in order to develop small molecules, which, uh, you know, are a little bit easier for the consumer. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Cellink is, is, and you mentioned CMAX, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but, um, you know, I've seen people that have done both of these and they actually prefer the Cellink, uh, just even for cognitive performance aspects. And I don't know if this has to do with increasing the BDNF or increasing the blood flow to the brain that you get with Cellink, but I think really kind of mitigating a lot of that stress response facilitates the, the learning and memory aspects that some people experience with it. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, and there's, again, some good data on it. It, it's different ability to regulate stress. And, and, you know, even with the C, the CMAX in particular, we're, we're talking about variants of ACTH, right? Which is, you know, obviously a, a big factor in the stress response. Um, so, so yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, I can only, uh, definitely agree with that statement. Excellent. Now, here's, here's a cool new one that, that, you know, we've talked about. And this one, it's not really a peptide, um, but for cognitive performance, it sounds like it's really good. I don't have a lot of uh, people that I've spoken with that have actually used it, but this one is dihexa, and it comes in a cream, and it's actually a peptide variant of angiotensin four. And there's a lot of angiotensin four receptors in the brain uh, and other areas of the body, but one of the most fascinating things that I have seen about this is it's seven times more potent than BDNF. Yeah. So yeah, seven orders of magnitude more potent. Um, wow. So it's even, yeah. So it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And if you look at some of the, even the initial research, uh, I mean, it, it all sort of happened in, in Washington or the University of Washington with a professor, uh, I think Dr. Harding, and, and there's some really amazing data coming out. Um, and it, it took a while to even find this molecule because it's involved in several other pathways. Um, and essentially, uh, you know, what, when they found it, they were looking for one thing, which was activity um, on these the same angiotensin receptors and oral bioavailability and the ability to pass the blood brain barrier. Blood brain barrier. And all, this, this product has all of those things um, and seems to sort of help reverse any type of n neurological damage from a variety of insults, whether it be Parkinson's or, or you know, uh, Alzheimer's type stress, or even just induced chemical changes in the brain, which destroy neurons. And there doesn't seem to be a single etiology that it, it doesn't sort of help. Um, it's, uh, but it's, but its potency definitely gives us pause. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was that was amazing when I was reading some of the the research studies on dihexa, and that's. That's what got me attracted to it and definitely on my list of uh, next things to try. Um, now, this one comes in, you, you, the pharmacy creates it into a cream. So you just apply the cream daily. It's not an injection, which is really cool. I like that. Um, but I've also read that the dihexa is, is one of the few that's stable in the gut. So uh, why are you not doing that in pill form right now? Yeah, so we, it all goes with us being a little bit more cautious um, because as a, it's a variant of the hepatocyte growth factor, and we know that that is going to be a activating uh, CMET, which has been involved in, in a lot of things. And in particular, we don't want it to go through you know, first-pass metabolism or we don't want it to, to stimulate cancer. So we do really low doses uh, you know, as a cream uh, to be more conservative. Um, 
But for some of our more, I said, should say seriously cognitive decline patients, uh, we do uh, do it as a, as a oral capsule, but very, very rarely. I would also uh, even recommend there, there's, there is a video out there of even some of the trials they performed on rats, uh, you know, where they've experienced cognitive de- deficit in water maze tests or even uh, hanging tests where, um, you know, they'd simulate Parkinson's and then see how long the, the rat can hang. If, if, if you want a visual idea of how much this product can help um, disease states, uh, some of those are really, really amazing to watch and look at. And yeah, there's a lot of uh, fear-based uh, posts on this because of that CMET. And what Ryan's referring to is uh, the CMET pathway activation has been implicated in uh, carcinogenesis or forming tumors. And really the data, they've actually looked at the data and there is not any strong evidence that, and, and they're not sure why, but it doesn't seem to have any impact on uh, carcinogenesis from, from what I've seen in the studies. Correct. The other thing I should note is that usually uh, in the community that, that, that has tried this sort of, you know, not through physician supervised um, uh, usage, a lot of people report uh, some type of ADHD type side effect as, as long term uses of this. And I can't say that we've seen that in anyone that we've used it in thus far. Uh, but we, we again, always sort of try and remain cautious um, and, and use this in, in, uh, in a very medically supervised manner. Yeah, and all of these, all of these products should really be under the care of a physician that that really understands the products well. And you know, Ryan is actually right now at a uh, peptide training course he teaches um, as one of the uh, faculty with that. And uh, so a lot of physicians are now learning how to use peptides. And you know, I've seen some statistics on in the marketplace about how in the next five years, peptides is going to be the, the majority of uh, prescriptions on the market. I mean, is that relatively close? Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is absolutely exploding for the same reasons I talked about earlier. Is the Traditionally, the biggest weaknesses of peptides have been its bioavailability and its its duration and half-life. And, and now with better science, we're overcoming all of those issues. And now we're just left with all the positives, which are, you know, great specificity, less drug-to-drug side effects, uh, easy metabolism, uh, predictable metabolism. And so we're left with all of the benefits and, uh, and new science is taking away all the weaknesses. So we're left with a really, really strong drug therapy. Yeah. And, you know, this is, you know, what I do in my medical practice is we really focus on trying to get as you know, it's, it's precision performance medicine. So we really get as precise as we can on identifying what areas need to be intervened to, to create more optimal outcomes. And peptides have been the tool that has been just amazing with us able to finally target things. I mean, you know, when you look at peptides, so a lot of these peptides are pieces of larger uh, proteins or uh, polypeptides that the body creates naturally. But when you have a long chain of these amino acids, they there are different receptor sites on those. And so different parts of that molecule will bind to different receptors. So when you when you give somebody the full pept or the full uh, hormone or uh, polypeptide, it's going to activate multiple areas. But when you kind of chop this thing up and take the pieces that are very specific for a specific receptor you can really fine tune the, the outcomes with this, which is just fascinating. It's great stuff. Um, let's talk about, there, there's two that uh, you've got coming out right now. Um, and the one it sounds really good, but you've told me that you're not sure about, um, you know, 
whether this is is going to lead up to all the hype. And this is RG3, which is a uh, ginsenicide derivative. So tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, so it's uh, one of the, uh, it's a, a part of a, the saponin um, category of some of the variants of, uh, of the ginseng derivatives, the active bioactive the pharmaceutical uh, products in, in the ginseng um, plant. And, and RG3 has some really, really fascinating data across a lot of different issues. Sometimes it's got a lot of t- uh, data that which expresses it's anti-cancer. There's really good data on its anti-inflammatory effect. There's really good data on its uh, ability to help with insulin resistance. Um, but as, we, as it relates to um, you know, sort of how it works uh, neurologically, uh, there's actually a study that came out on February 17th um, that I just saw yesterday, which was really exciting, and it's sort of pathogenesis of Alzheimer's. Or even since we last talked, I think maybe my opinion is slightly shifting. Um, but uh, but the one area that I think that it that it works really well is reducing neuroinflammation um, for those people who are already experiencing some type of pathology um, and having those microglial cells activated in the brain. Uh, sort of turning down that inflammation and reducing a lot of those symptoms is, is where I think this one can really shine. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of these, um, a lot of these neuroregenerative uh, peptides are showing some amazing results with with Alzheimer's disease, and so it'd be it'd be nice to start seeing some studies where we we look at some combinations like with dihexa and RG3 and uh, FGL and maybe BPC to, to kind of see how the combinations affect uh, the outcome with Alzheimer's disease. Um, because some of them reduce amyloid beta, some of them increase uh, neuroregeneration. Uh, I think taking that complex systems approach with, um, with this, this disease state can, can really create some uh, pretty amazing outcomes. And, and most of these peptides are you know, generally regarded as safe. Um, as long as they're they're kind of utilized the right way, there's not a whole lot of side effects that you get with these. Correct, correct. And and another thing, I, I just while we're on the topic of RG three, um, sorry about that. Um, um, but uh, while we're on the topic of RG three, I also traditionally like to say that uh, you know a lot of people talk about its, its success in helping with neuroinflammation. Um, but with that being said, uh, some neuroinflammation is definitely a good thing. Um, it can help with remodeling processes, plasticity. It can help with traditional brain processes, um, and that's obviously advantageous. Yeah, how about FGL? This is a fairly new one. This is a, an NCAM mimetic, and uh, pretty interesting uh, studies on this one. Definitely. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, in particular, the FGL is really, really exciting. It's actually very, very new. It was awarded uh, a couple million dollars in Europe, and it's been mainly studied in Denmark. Uh, but as you said, the, the NCAM or the neural cell adhesion molecule, um, what it can do is it can essentially help uh, restore deficiencies. Some people uh, in neurodegenerative diseases will have a deficiency of NCAM uh, stimulation, um, and so things like depression. Um, but beyond that, can also increase the ability to... Um, to uh, create new memories um, and, and have a better memory response. So this is one that definitely makes sense in, uh, in your, your normal healthy patients as well in terms of uh, just performing optimally and increasing the ability to uh, remember uh, memories, facts, details, whatever it might be. Now, is this the one that, that activates uh, neural stem cells? Um, you know, I haven't seen that particular data, um, but it, it might have been something that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, because I've I've seen some some talk about how it uh, potentially 
an intervention for demyelinating diseases, Alzheimer's disease, stroke recovery, due to its uh, kind of neuroregeneration and neurogenesis aspects. But I thought that this one was the one that will mobilize neuronal stem cells. Um, yeah, no, again, uh, I, I haven't seen that, but it, it definitely makes sense in terms of its, uh, what I've read in terms of mechanism of action. Okay, yeah, and they, they're actually doing an Alzheimer's disease trial with this one too, right? Yeah, correct. And that's probably right now its, it's main indication. Um, although, like I said, it's been studied uh, in a variety of things as it relates to memory. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to bring up one that, you know, a lot of the biohackers out there are very familiar with this one. A lot of the athletes, um, it's BPC-157. And, you know, to talk about this when it comes to neurologic health or brain performance uh, is surprising for a lot of people, but it actually has a pretty profound effect. Yeah, d definitely. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, the BPC is one that is, uh, you know, it's got data in just about everything. It's, it looks good in, uh, you know, metabolic disease. It looks good in ligament and tendon recovery. It looks good even in, uh, in some dopamine type disease states uh, in the brain. It, it works on the gut brain axis. It, it almost looks too good to be true, which uh, obviously gives us some pause. But we've seen time and time again that its clinical effects can definitely help patients. Yeah, I've, uh, I've seen the studies on uh, traumatic brain injury, on depression, and some of them speculate that there is, it, it's due to the gut healing aspects of BPC, but there, there's also some direct impact of BPC on the brain from what I understand too. Yeah, correct. There's a really good study that's sort of entitled exactly what you're talking about, the uh, BPC and the gut-brain axis. Um, and what you see is even direct, uh, you know, regulation of increase of serotonin. So you can sort of help treat depression um, or it has mood lifting benefits while not really worrying about serotonergic syndrome or anything like that. So it, it definitely has direct effects in the brain um, in addition to its effects all over the body uh, for, for the other benefits we see, such as, you know, the gut or, or, or repair and recovery. And this is one that can be taken orally. Yeah, one of the very, very few. You know, there's certain variants of this molecule which are better orally. But uh, again, this was originally derived from gastric juice. Um, so it's originally one of those peptides which is actually expressed in, in the GI tract uh, to reduce ulcers and inflammation. Excellent. Yeah, this is, uh, this is one of the favorites of, uh, of my population is this BPC-157. Pretty pretty profound effects with majority of people, not everybody, but with the majority of people that have used it, they, they've experienced amazing, not only gut recovery. I mean, it, it is my go-to for gut recovery. I, I've never seen anything that healed the gut like this does. Um, I've gone away from, I, I would have all these big protocols for gut recovery and it worked about half the time. And BPC works almost every single time it's used for, for the gut. Amazing uh, outcomes with that. And, um, you know, on top of that, the, the tissue injury aspect, especially when it comes to um, tendon and ligament injuries, man, I'm just seeing really amazing recoveries with it. So really thrilled about BPC. Um, now I want to talk about one, it's called the Barbie drug. So a lot of people talk about this one. Um, Melanotan 2, because so many, take, so many people take it to uh, really for the purpose of, of rapidly tanning. I mean, you can take this stuff for like, um, four or five days. If you're if you're normal kind of body tent, uh, you can take it for about four or five days. Get about thirty to forty minutes of sun exposure, and you'll have like a full summer tan in in just those three four to five days. It's a, it's it's amazing from that standpoint. But 
the one thing that is really glossed over a lot of this is the the fact that it's an alpha MSH mimetic and is used in a lot of recovery for the brain. So let's let's talk a little bit about this. Sure. Yeah. The the uh, you know again, like you said, it's unfortunate that it's again labeled as sort of a the, you know the, the spring break or the Barbie drug, as some people might say, just because of its tanning and libido effects. Um, but uh, but even its libido effects give us a little bit of insight into sort of some of the ways that it's working on those melacordin receptors. Um, and beyond that, we've known for a long, long time that alpha MSH. Uh, uh, is very, very anti-inflammatory as well. So, um, you know, people have even used uh, alpha MSH or alpha MSH variants in things like, uh, you know, joint issues to reduce joint inflammation and reduce pain. But its traditional effect on the brain is, I would say, most often used clinically uh, in disease states like uh, like SIRS or the chronic, chronic inflammatory response syndrome or things like Lyme where you have a high degree of neuroinflammation. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people using really low doses, uh, chronic low doses of the uh, the melanotan too to mitigate the the symptoms of that chronic inflammatory response syndrome that they get from chronic Lyme or uh, chronic mold issues. Now, this isn't it's it's not really resolving the the state, but it's helping to mitigate the symptoms while you're working on clearing uh, these toxins or or this infection from the system, but uh, seen some pretty good results with it and uh, the people that have used it have, uh, have raved about it. now cmax also has the ability to uh, to interact with alpha msh too doesn't it correct yeah both the, both the c-link and the cmax um have portions which will activate the melacortinin receptors similar to alpha msh um probably to a much lesser degree you know even and i should also note that a lot of the time people who are using the the melanotan 2 for for some of its neurological effects, you're using it in much, much lower doses than someone would typically use it for tanning. Yeah. And, uh, and this brings us to C-Max, which is definitely a favorite among a lot of, uh, a lot of experimenters and, uh, and people looking for cognitive enhancement. Uh, this is a nasal spray, and it's really, it's really pretty amazing. I, I kind of call it uh, like a nitrous shot for the, for the brain because... Um, usually you, most of the people that I work with, they're using it over a baseline of cognitive enhancement. Um, but this is definitely a boost. So let's talk about CMAX. Yeah, it's, it's uh, again, relatively similar to the C-Link without the, uh, if you're going to sort of compare the profiles, not necessarily the chemical structure, you traditionally have the C-Link being very, you know, working on anti-anxiety where the C-Max is just sort of ramping up processing speeds, ramping up uh, focus ability. It's been studied particularly, as we mentioned, in, in you know, early in ADHD populations. Um, so it, it is definitely more of the, the boost rather than sort of the calming focus. It's more of the, uh, more of a, I would say, a similar to a stimulant type feel, even though it doesn't have any stimulant properties. Yeah, and that's that's what I've I've heard people say is that they get they they do a couple of shots of the nasal spray and they get about four hours of just this high productivity focus and uh, and pure attention on the task that they're doing. This also increases BDNF, uh, so learning and memory should improve with that as well. Definitely. The other thing I should note uh, with both the C-Link and the C-Max, which is a little bit unconventional, is you actually get higher and better uh, blood-brain barrier absorption with nasal sprays than you do with the injectable. Um, so both are, are, are commonly used, uh, but it actually the data sort of leans towards nasal rather than the injectables, which is pretty rare in the peptide world. 
Yeah, I noticed that uh, a lot of places will sell it based on both an injection versus a versus a nasal spray. Hard to find the uh, the nasal sprays uh, other than through prescription at this point, though. It's uh, it's becoming very scarce. Uh, Correct. And they'll do it as a commercial available product in some countries like Russia. Um, so you might see it, uh, you know, with uh, with different Russian spelling or, or something of that nature. Now, talk to me about the, the there's a couple versions of this. Um, I mean, you're using the, the pure C-Max, but there's uh, also an acetyl C-Max and some uh, other forms of it. Correct. The inacetyl the, the is, uh, is such a, like I said, a chemical mod modification to increase its activity. Um, so to have longer durations and a stronger potency. Uh, you know, most of the time we uh, will actually tend to lean, lean toward the inacetyl version uh, just because there'll be less frequent administrations. Yeah. So, you know, I want to emphasize the fact that, you know, these are not things that generally the... the People in the general public shouldn't really be playing with these things. Um, these are a lot of these can be purchased from uh, research com uh, research chemical companies, and uh, there's no real regulation in any of these areas. And it's not that N of one studies are perfectly legal. I mean, you are legal to buy this stuff and utilize it as you as you choose, but it is uh, it is not a recommended. That, that I would suggest to, to anybody. You need to be really working with somebody who, who understands these peptides. And there's a lot of them. I mean, does your pharmacy have a list of uh, people that, um, that are well-trained in this area right now, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. We, we try and redirect to uh, practitioners that we you know, uh, know and respect and, and know will take uh, you know, good, good clinical care of all the patients who come to us. So we, we definitely will try and... Uh, and connect um, needs with with people who definitely understand the topics. Uh, but we would stress the exact same thing: is that education is incredibly important, and, and education beyond a typical med edu medical education. A lot of these things require a, a high level of commitment uh, to learning outside of what you've traditionally learned uh, in, in in residencies or medical practices. So we recommend that uh, you know that people definitely pay attention to some of these new and upcoming products. And we have a lot of really good practitioners who can do that. Yeah, and this is, uh, for a while, you were the only one, you were the only pharmacy producing peptides in the U.S., but I've noticed that there's a few compounding pharmacies kind of coming online with this now. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, again, uh, most compounding pharmacies have to source from an FDA-registered manufacturer, and now a lot more of those are, are seeing the need um, for this across patient populations. So it's becoming hopefully more widely available. And everything you guys have, USP certified, everything... Yeah, again, it's uh, all done with uh, strict pharmacy uh, regulations and standards, um, including, you know, again, potency, purity. We do aggregation studies on all of our peptides. Uh, we, we make sure that the beyond use states are stable yeah, and, uh, and all of those things that you traditionally, you know, don't know about um, in, in the sort of the, the black market or the, uh, the for research use only type products. Yeah, and the uh, and the fact that it needs to be sterile since you're injecting this into your system, uh, <laughs> yes. sterility yep. is a is a big deal, <laughs> a huge deal. Um, and yeah, and uh, there've been several instances uh, to to sort of highlight that fact. Yeah. Um, now, I do not want to leave this conversation without talking about a new peptide that's going to be available in just a couple of weeks. Uh, this sure. one is super exciting to me. Uh, yeah. I've been following this since you first mentioned that it was uh, getting ready to come on onto the market, but 
this is called Mott CS now or SC. Now we're not talking about you know we're or we're talking about brain optimization here, but I think we would be negligent not to mention mitochondrial health when it comes to brain optimization. So tell us all about this new and exciting MOTSC. Yeah, absolutely. It is absolutely exciting. I am, I am equally uh, a pump for it as you are, I think, for, for a variety of reasons. And, and, you know, this is one of those products, which is um, actually an open reading frame in the mitochondria. So the idea is whenever your mitochondria gets stressed, they will preferentially create the RNA for this material. And this material, this RNA will actually go into your cytoplasmic nucleus in order to be transcribed and have genetic changes. Um, and so that's a pretty cool thing in and of itself is that you're, you're talking about, you're talking about the connection between two different genomes, your mitochondrial genome and your somatic genome. Um, and you're talking about how this, your body sort of regulates and interacts with metabolic stress. Um, and so all the downstream changes of that are equally exciting. We've seen obviously good data in, um, you know, obesity, insulin sensitivity, um, you know, energy, uh, and there's a lot of, a lot of really exciting data, even as it relates to longevity, um, with, uh, populations like, uh, the centurion, centurion populations in, in Japan who can live to be, you know, 120 years old, expressing this polymorphism, which means that they have higher levels of, of MOT SC. Um, so really, really exciting in a variety of areas. It looks like this one is, uh, is going to be one of the, the, the peptides of the future. Okay, you glossed over the one aspect that is also really cool is the athletic performance piece. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is. Uh, again, this is this is uh, for a lot of people in the athletic performance side of things. Will know that you know people will use things that activate AM, AMPK or or PGC uh, one one alpha or uh, you know things like ACAR or or even uh, things like the GW1516 will increase the peroxisome activated receptors. All of these things lead to increased mitochondrial biogenesis, which increase endurance, which will help with body comp. Um, it, it has multiple mechanisms by which it increases, uh, again, the, the AMP uh, kinase and leads to better athletic performance. Yeah, I saw the uh, PPAR-GC1A upregulation and it sold me right there. Uh, yeah. you know, this is one of the things that that really makes a big difference in endurance and VO2 max and, and athletic performance, but also in mitochondrial health. I mean, the mitochondrial biogenesis aspect is huge. And that link to longevity, uh, where the Japanese population that, that produce this at greater amounts, they have a very, very focused group of people that have significant longevity relative to the general population. Um, now, the interesting thing about this is this will probably not make it on the banned drug list for athletes, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I should say it might eventually, but it's, <laughs> it's sort of a ways away. Um, and one of the reasons is, is uh, you know, the testing strategies for this are a little bit difficult at the moment. Um, but but uh, I should also note that I, one thing I definitely want to mention as well is that even in, they've even noticed that much like insulin uh, resistance where, you, you know, you, you need exogenous insulin to handle uh, you know, your metabolic disease, uh, in people who carry more weight, particularly more visceral adipose tissue and, and subcutaneous adipose tissue, uh, they actually express less of this MOT SC because they've sort of become, um, desensitized to it. So another thing that points to the, the link between obesity, metabolic disease, and, uh, maybe expression of this particular product. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when BPC, a lot of athletes were using BPC because uh, there was no way to test for it. But I saw recently that uh, WADA had tested somebody positive for BPC. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that uh, the first uh, the first test for that was um, at the end of 2017, uh, where they sort of determined and quantified a method for testing the BPC. So it looks to be you know around a, a three year period between where uh, they develop the test and then whenever they actually implement it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this has been very cool. Um, I mean, this is opening up a whole new world for a lot of people. But um, you know, there's a there's quite a few people out there that really know this stuff well. And uh, so if you decide to venture into peptides, be sure to, uh, to kind of contact somebody who, who's got some uh, experience and some medical background in, in utilizing these. I mean, it's not to say you can't go online and, and self-experiment. I don't recommend you do that, though, because I, I have had people come to me that have done that and had some adverse outcomes, even though they're, they're not common. But it's it's also easy to to mix up uh, something the wrong way, and this is something you're injecting into your system, so it's really important. So, for you, Ryan, anything uh, new on the horizon that's exciting to you? Uh, where are we going with this stuff? Yeah, no, uh, there's always I think exciting stuff on the horizon. I mean, new, new peptides are being created every day, um, and and that's always exciting. We try and definitely stay on the forefront, but. Um, you know, I think nothing really excites me like these neurological peptides, um, just with the increasing, uh, uh, you know, incidence and burden of neurodegenerative diseases. I'm really excited to see what some of these peptides can do in the next 10 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see some clinical trials with this stuff in uh, some of the neurodegenerative stuff like the Alzheimer's and, and even the, the MS. I mean, MS has been a stale area of, uh, of progression. And uh, I think that uh, some of these have that potential to, to really um, do some work in that. Even at ALS, I've seen some of these worked in ALS and some uh, animal models. So it would be really nice to see the researchers start, start doing the research on this. But for some reason, I don't see a lot of the peptides being researched. I mean, a lot of the research is based on the Reddit feed. <laughs> you know, all, the, all of the N of one studies, because... Uh, because like you said, I mean, the, there's not a drive to patent these. So the research studies aren't going to get funded. And uh, it's, it's just the problem with the, with the whole research-based system right now. Absolutely. And I think the, the two areas you'll probably see the most development are going to be with the, uh, the dihexa and the FGL. Those are going to have, I think, some continuing uh, research abilities. And then even with the mod S uh, there are already some some products uh, further downstream, even in the Mod SC, uh, to be more potent and more uh, bioactive. Um, and so there, there you'll see some areas, but uh, I but absolutely agree, and would love to see more research as well. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your your teaching there at the uh, the peptide conference and uh, spending it with us today to to drop some really uh, amazing information on us and. Hope to have you back sometime to talk more about uh, some of these as they come up and come out and Absolutely. and develop more into into more clinical tracks. Absolutely, and I appreciate you having me, and uh, look forward to, to coming back again. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Ryan Smith. If you like this episode, then please share it with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. If you're hungry for more information to take control of your overall health and well-being. Check out our free ebook that offers a well-rounded approach to brain health, the foundational guide to neurohacking at neurohacker.com guide. Make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.